Nolan Peterson is a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council's Eurasia Center. He's an independent defense consultant, award-winning journalist, war correspondent, and author who's lived in Ukraine since 2014. As an international correspondent, Peterson has covered conflicts around the world. And apart from his work in Ukraine, he's been embedded in the past with US armed forces in Iraq and Afghanistan and with the Kurdish Peshmerga during the battle for Mosul in Iraq. Peterson is a former US Air Force Special Operations pilot and a veteran of both the Iraq and Afghan wars. And his work has been widely published by numerous news outlets, including the Wall Street Journal, CNN, Fox News, BBC, Newsweek, and many, many others. He's also the author of a fantastic book, which we'll pop a link in the description to, of Why Soldiers Miss War, The Journey Home, and several collections of fiction as well. And I'm delighted to say this is the second time uh, we can welcome you onto the channel today. Well, thank you so much for having me. I really look forward to the conversation. Well, a lot has happened uh, since we last spoke. One of those things, of course, is that I visited Ukraine for the first time, um, which after a year and a half of uh, interviewing people and learning about it, as well as being, dare I say it, you know, quite an active supporter of Ukraine, um, it was it was kind of a bit weird to be there for the first time. Was it was it what you expected? I mean, I think to visit any any country in wartime, uh, particularly the war such as as it is in Ukraine, where you see such a national mobilization of the will to fight, this patriotic sense that this this country is you know fighting for not only its freedom but its its survival. I imagine that's got to be very emotionally um just sorry moving for you as it as it has certainly been for me since i arrived in 2014 and i also think it i mean i'm sure for you as well as it, it is for everybody who visits ukraine it reinvigorates your sense of purpose uh to help support ukraine's just cause and to push back against many of the false narratives that we see being spread about the war it absolutely did. And of course, I went to Lviv. Lviv isn't necessarily, uh, you know, uh, representative of the entire country. I know different regions and cities have uh, different identities. Um, but Lviv certainly, I think, now is very much treasured uh, by people around the country because, in a sense, it one of those regions which was on the fringe of the Soviet Union, but which kept the Ukrainian culture and spirit alive. And I think it has been you know, maligned in the past, but now is is very much held in affection by most of the Ukrainians that I speak to. And of course, many left the country via Lviv. So first of all, you know, being in that place, which a year and a half ago was the scene of such extraordinary news footage that had that echo of those terrible events, that sort of terror. Um, of course, there weren't that many people when I went, uh, but you still had to queue up. You can't fly in. So the journey is 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 quite long and there are multiple stages to it. So I think that's the first kind of impression is, you know, you're going into a country where things aren't normal simply through the uh, the number of steps and hours and, you know, hoops you have to, to jump through. Um, but once I got there, you expect to be shocked by all sorts of things. Uh, obviously, you know, the number of air raid sirens and so on is, is is eerie and terrifying, but you were kind of expecting to feel like that. So I was looking out for things that were unexpected. And um, I think the two that stood out for me was visiting the Superhuman Center. I haven't published the video on that yet, but we shot a lot of footage in a rehabilit rehabilitation center for service people. Uh, men and women who have lost limbs, one, two, three, and sometimes four. Um, and we expected that to be, we expected it, frankly, to be incredibly depressing. And it wasn't. It was mm -hmm. one of the most uplifting things I've I've ever done. Um, seeing an absolutely world-class facility uh, that's been planned and built in less than a year and has obviously developed sort of world-class processes and professionals and just the sheer sort of passion we met when we we spoke to people who were working there and we spoke to the CEO of it, extraordinarily overwhelming um, how positive that was. And we spoke to a number of, of, of people, some who just arrived from the front, some had been there for a few days or a few weeks. And they all told us the same story, which is if you're wounded on the front, you 
you don't want to lose a limb. And there's the belief of people fighting on the front that it's better to die than to lose a limb. And I think that's a widespread belief. And certainly everyone we spoke to there who was undergoing rehabilitation said that they felt that way until, of course, they're injured and evacuated out. Um, and arriving in this place, their psychology was completely upturned because they saw around them people who were very rapidly rebuilding their lives, finding a purpose in their lives, uh, you know, playing sports, interacting. And it was the embodiment, really, of Ukrainian resilience in action. That was extraordinary. And that's a great point. I think just beyond to wounded veterans, I think it's, you know, when you talk about a veteran who's lost his or her, you know, arm or leg or been grievously wounded in some way to find a way to give agency back to them, right. To, to reintegrate into society and to be a contributing member of society. I have no doubt that when the war is over, this generation of Ukrainian veterans who have served are going to spearhead the next generation of reformers in the country to propel their country in a positive pro-democratic uh, direction. The country's already, you know, on a very strong democratic arc. But I think that now that there is this collective sense of sacrifice, collective sense of service, hundreds of thousands of people have served in the war. When you put these people now and they're going to rise to positions of authority, whether in business or politics, they are going to drive those really positive changes in the country uh, moving ahead. And as somebody like me, and I I first arrived in Ukraine in 2014 when Russia first invaded, and it was really striking back then how to serve in the military or to be a veteran was not highly esteemed in society. There were many Soviet-era sort of stereotypes or tropes about military service where you only go in the military if you can't get out of, mobile, of the draft, compensatory, uh, compulsory draft, or you just have no other options in life. But now military service is seen as a noble, heroic, courageous uh, endeavor in life. And so there's a respect and admiration for veterans in Ukrainian society. And that's great because now you're admiring the people who sacrificed, who risked everything in a physical sense, but also spiritually for their country's freedom. And to you know, so raise these people up to have um, more ability, more power, to drive the transformation of Ukraine after the war, I think is going to be an incredibly positive thing for the country. I think, you know, at one point, sometime in the next, you know, in our lives, we're going to see veterans, combat veterans becoming the president of Ukraine. And I think that will be, you know, to, to take people who have put their personal uh, desires, ambitions, uh, their lives on the line for their country, that instills in you a sense of duty and service that I think has somewhat eluded, you know, politicians in the past in Ukraine who many of, you know, the endemic corruption that Ukraine struggled with in the 1990s following the fall of the Soviet Union. A lot of people were driven by self-interest, but now that's giving way to a sense of unity and cohesion and the, the need to do what's best for the country. Like that famous quote by JFK, right? That's not what your country can do for you. That's what you can do for your country. That spirit is alive and well in Ukraine. So glad to hear that, you know, these wounded veterans are being physically healed in a way that can allow them to then continue to serve their country in positive ways. And do you think as well their tolerance for corruption or the slow pace of tackling corruption, do you think their tolerance is really going to be, you know, they're not going to put up with it uh, and they're going to want to fight uh, for their civic rights in the way that they have uh, fought militarily with determination? Yeah, well, I think that you know, Ukraine's system of government, their government, I hear this a lot from my Ukrainian friends and colleagues, is that Ukraine is a country with a democratic culture, which has far outpaced its democratic institutions. And I think that that disparity will grow even wider um, during the war, because now you have a sense of unity a sense of national unity, of national identity that is so cohesive now because of Russia's war. You know, Russia's attack on Ukraine's right to exist has unified Ukrainians because as a nation now, they they band together from east to west, north to south, whether your primary language is Russian or Ukrainian, everybody's in this together now. And so that national sense of unity will be very you know positive uh, for, for the country moving forward. But like I said about the veterans, it's not just people who've served on the front lines who've sacrificed in this war. You know, a recent poll said that 80% of Ukrainians personally know somebody, friend or family member, who's been killed or wounded by combat, 80%. But I would argue the number is 100%. Just anecdotally, I cannot imagine a single Ukrainian who doesn't 
have a friend or a relative who's been affected physically by this war, you know, millions of people displaced from their homes. So there is a, a sense of communal suffering and sacrifice uh, that will absolutely, it's already changing. You see these, you know, just in one-on-one -on -one discussions with people, there's much less tolerance for corruption because people say, you know, I didn't fight for this, or I haven't volunteered at this, you know, at the, at these volunteer groups. I haven't given my money. I haven't stand, stood at a checkpoint for hours in the rain and the snow so that some rich businessman can steal money and lead this, you know, opulent lifestyle at our expense. So yes, I think that, you know, Ukraine's freedom was, it, it just sort of arose, you know, sort of spontaneously, if you want to say that, at the at the collapse of the Soviet Union. And this is the moment now, and it began in 2014, but now it's most acute, where Ukrainians are paying the price for that freedom. You know, they're paying it in blood, years, um, hard work, you know, all the sacrifice and all the suffering they've endured. And so when the war is over and they have won that freedom, uh, I think that they're not going to be willing to give it up uh, or just or to look the other way uh, for people who are abusing what they've fought to achieve. And especially if there are people who dare I say sort of collaborate with a foreign power uh, undermining their own country, I would imagine the tolerance for that is is going to be zero. Yeah. And like, let's be honest, too. I mean, that was since the fall of the Soviet Union in 1991. Corruption was a vector for Russia to put a governor, so to speak, uh, to impede Ukraine's democratic progress. It was a way to prevent Ukraine from becoming this democratic success story, which would then belie the Russian myth that, you know, that the Soviet Union is, you know, this, you know, this power that we need to reconstitute or that Russia has some sort of inherent, you know, uh, assumed influence over Ukraine, which is not true. The Ukrainian people want a pro-democratic and now very pro-Western future. Uh, so yes, corruption has always been a way for for Russia to to hobble Ukraine's democratic transformation. Uh, it's been a it, it was a way to maintain Ukraine's military weakness prior to 2014. Ukraine's military had been gutted by corruption before 2014. So you've seen since 2014 um, this sort of you know transformation, this renaissance of Ukraine's military into a much more formidable fighting force. But they've had to rebuild from the consequences of that Russian-backed corruption, which was meant to prevent Ukraine from ever establishing its own autonomy uh, as far as providing for its own defense. And also, you know, as we look now to where the war currently is, where it's, you know, I would say the, the word I would use for both sides is a stress test for both sides right now. And so because it is at this point where the will to fight is being tested by both sides, uh, you know, the information war is incredibly important. And, you know, I would certainly look to see Russia trying to make the case that, you know, Ukraine is a corrupt country not worthy of America's support. But that is an argument from the Kremlin uh, that they are going to try and feed into the media narrative to to give sort of a talking point to those people who who do not see the utility of supporting Ukraine. So corruption, whether it's an active effort by Russia to foster corruption in Ukraine, to promote it, uh, to spread, you know, lies or falsehoods in the media narrative, uh, that is certainly one part of Russia's sort of collective, comprehensive war effort against Ukraine. And uh, from the interviews uh, with military personnel, I've learned quite a lot. War is a test of will, a test of logistics, and of course, a test of industrial capacity. Do you see Ukraine really, you know, despite the horrific costs of the war, do you see them pushing ahead on all those three objectives? And do you see Ukraine operating quite strategically to de de degrade you know, Russian logistics, um, to out, not necessarily produce, but you know, with Western armament, with Ukrainian innovation to beat on that front? And then, of course, the last one, the, the, the willpower uh, that... Uh, one must assume um, there's greater willpower than, say, the Russian conscripts uh, would have. Yeah, well, I think, you know, when you look at the, we'll start with the will to fight, the national will to fight in Ukraine is very robust. Um, multiple polling, multiple uh, polls throughout the course of the war have shown that the Ukrainian desire uh, 
to, to go on fighting is incredibly robust. And the most recent poll I've seen, I think it was last month, said that over 90% of Ukrainians will not accept any territorial concessions to Russia for the sake of peace. They want to get all of their occupied territory back, including Crimea. And that percentage has maintained that fairly consistent level throughout the, the course of the war. It even went up last winter during the height of Russia's attacks against critical infrastructure sites in Ukraine, which sent you know millions of Ukrainians living in the dark and the cold in the dead of winter. They still were not willing to compromise on the outcome of this war, which is to get every last Russian soldier off their land, but most importantly, to liberate the many Ukrainians who are stuck living under Russia's barbaric uh, occupation. Uh, so the national will to fight is there among Ukrainians. And by the way, that 90%, you know, you look at east to west, that's, that is not like, you know, you're not like looking at people in Lviv who are 90%, we're not going to concede to Russia. And it's like significantly different, different east. It's very uniform across the entire country. And it's you know, definitely needs to be noted that on the eastern part of Ukraine, where many people traditionally spoke Russian at home, maybe there is some sort of uh, sort of cultural nostalgia for Russia among the older population in that part of the country before the full-scale invasion. That's gone because that part of, of Ukraine has suffered the worst of Russia's occupation and their war crimes. So, <laughs> you know, Russia's brutal uh, war of aggression has done more to unify Ukrainians around their common sense of national unity, unity than anything else has since independence from the Soviet Union. So, yeah, will to fight, very robust in Ukraine. Uh, I think that the, you know, the war, I I think that the, the great test right now is just from a material standpoint, can the West continue to supply Ukraine with enough stuff, primarily looking at artillery shells, keeping up, you know, drone supplies, drone components to mean to backfill what is being expended and used on the front lines. Russia too, we see them going to North Korea for artillery shells. So in a physical sense, it's it's certainly a war of attrition. Uh, economically, you know, Russia's economy is 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 a uh, put, they're putting a lot of band-aids in their economy right now to try and sustain the sanctions and maintain this massive upsurge in defense spending to continue the war. So, you know, Russia's economy is not going to weather this indefinitely, but also in Ukraine. I mean, the economic toll of this war, I think, is something that doesn't get enough coverage. It doesn't get enough coverage, but you know, Ukraine cannot sustain the war if the economy collapses. And I think that you know one impression that I got on this on my last uh, trip to Ukraine a few weeks ago, you know, it, when you leave the major cities of Kiev and Lviv, uh, and you travel through what I would call like Ukraine's flyover country, right? Like in America, we have between the two coasts, the middle of America, which sometimes doesn't get the media attention that other parts of the country do. In Ukraine, it's the same way because you have a lot of journalists in the major cities, journalists on the front lines, but in that, you know, that space between the ordinary little towns and villages and cities that aren't necessarily uh, critical to the war effort, that's where most blue collar Ukrainians live. And when you go visit those places, I visited my Ukrainian family, my wife is Ukrainian, so to visit her, her parents, her, her uncle and their families, um, you get a sense that the economic toll of the conflict. Like along the roads, you see so many people selling fruit or vegetables, or, and you just, you stop, you pull off the road and you ask them, it's like, well, I've got no other way to, to provide for my, and they're making pennies, kopecks. <laughs> uh, and so you, you get a sense that it, it really is economically very, very tough for the country. And I think that is a, an avenue or a way in which the West uh, really needs to think, you know, it's not just about weapons, it's about keeping the economy afloat, uh, allowing the normal economic processes to continue during the war to allow Ukraine to sustain this. And I think for Ukraine too, knowing that at one point there may be an expiration date on some of this Western military aid, they also need to start developing, uh, and you see this rapidly with the drone industry, but their ability to create weapon systems and hardware domestically on their own without relying on the West. But you see that, you know, with these naval drones, maritime drones, you're seeing that with the Neptune cruise missiles, like they are doing that. And so I think that reflects that Ukraine is is looking for like the long-term economic sustainability of this war, which is going to be, is going to be so critical. But I guess, you know, one final note too, is you look at the, the, uh, the front lines of the counteroffensive, 
And I think that many pessimists or people who want to say that Ukraine's war effort is misguided or somehow stalled, like the analogy I would use is it, I think the front lines and the counteroffensive right now are like two tectonic plates. And you may not see a lot of back and forth with territory right now. Ukrainians are not gobbling up territory, but there's an incredible amount of stress being applied to the Russians. And as long as the counteroffensive can continue, that stress could lead to some sort of, you know, expenditure of energy that creates this tectonic shift that could allow the Ukrainians uh, to make a breakthrough that, a breakthrough that they could exploit for, I don't think for war winning effect at this point, but for an effect that could set them up uh, to achieve their military objectives. And this is where the degradation of uh, Russian logistics and supply lines comes in. And I know movement on the front gets most of the attention of people who are covering it, but it's the actions on taking out sort of supply lines and making supply to those troops difficult, which is a big part of the uh, the stress, isn't it? Definitely. Like there's, I, I think about that famous line from uh, from Hemingway, you know, about going bankrupt. He wrote it in the, the Sun Also Rises. It's, it goes slowly and then suddenly, right? And so I think there's a misperception among some people that you know, this offensive is going to be this like charging the hill and planting the Ukrainian flag like in Mount Suribachi and Iwo Jima or something like that, right? Like it's, it's not going to be this like Hollywood-esque, like, you know, very dramatic, like massive gain. It's, it, you know, the the advance is going to be measured by this very slow degradation, this stress test, like I alluded to, of the Russians' ability to hold their lines. And a key part of that is the degradation of logistics, which is why, you know, HIMARS with a range of about 50 miles have been very effective, but attack ATACMs would be very helpful because 100 to 190 miles allows you obviously to strike more, many more targets. I don't, you know, I don't buy into the argument that if Ukraine advances far enough, they're going to have then like, our, you know, indirect fire sort of uh, a field of range that they can like totally paralyze the Russian land bridge between Crimea and Mariupol. I mean, you look at other parts of the front line, there's still free movement within a few miles of the, of the contact line. So the idea that, you know, just having sort of this, this shadow of indirect fire is going to, you know, somehow hop, you know, completely like paralyze the Russian warfare. That's just, that's not true. But I, I do think I totally agree with you that the slow degradation, the slow accumulated effect of these strikes against logistics, which also has a psychological effect on Russian morale too. And I think that, you know, this is not something you could bet on, but one possible outcome that I hope that I think, you know, would be the you know, this sort of the dream scenario, so to speak, that the Ukrainians would hope for is that Russian morale cracks at some point and that you could see a unit mutinying or abandoning their post, which would open up a way for the Ukrainians to advance. But yeah, these these strikes have a cumulative effect to add to that stress on the Russian positions. And that is, you know, the Ukrainians are playing a smart game. They understand this is a war that's going to last probably a long time, and they don't want to devote sort of an unwise amount of their resources until into an ill-fated sort of, you know, blitzkrieg attack that's not going to achieve their objectives, waste a lot of men and materiel. So they're they're taking a more cautious, prudent approach, which is to chip away, apply enough stress uh, with, you know, with the intent at some point that the Russians... Uh, will not be able to hold their positions. So. And of course, they have seen that the Russians are not necessarily economical with their people or their material. They tend to throw stuff away, sort of single-use soldiers. Um, and therefore, is this is this quite a sensible strategy? Because I know that various sort of Western military analysts have been criticizing. There's been a lot of press criticizing as well. For what it's worth, you know, we saw the same World War II, or if you look back at the papers, um, you saw a similar thing after the Normandy landings. So maybe it's easy to discount, you know, the, the, the journalistic impatience. But is the Ukrainian strategy built on a really quite a deep understanding of how, let's say, frivolous or callous the Russians are with their resources and wasteful? Definitely, yeah. I mean, it, it, this is, you know, the, the attritional attritional war you know is attritional in a material sense uh but also in a psychological sense and we all you know you could look at the pregosian mutiny as 
one possible sort of bellwether of what could happen in the future too, right? Like the waste of men and material, this very sort of, like you said, callous, you know, inhumane <laughs> method of warfare by the Russians, you know, as long as the counteroffensive endures, there is still the chance that there could be some, some, you know, unanticipated event that could give the Ukrainians a major advantage. And so, yeah, you, you know, the, the Russians, this, you know, sort of disrespect of their soldiers' lives um, is, is something to exploit at the, at the unit level among the Russians. At some point, they may not be willing, you know, to advance or hold their lines anymore if there's just such carnage that they can't sustain their will to fight. You know, there is an argument that maybe the mass loss of, of Russians in the front lines could engender some sort of, you know, political pushback against Putin. Fortunately, we're not really seeing that, you know, Russian propaganda has a, has a very tight grip. And also, you know, I think this is probably a subject for a whole other conversation, but I think that, you know, that I, I personally don't believe the notion that this is Putin's war. I think that the Russian people are largely complicit in this war and they believe in the false narrative that, that Putin used uh, to justify this war. Uh, and it's, you know, it, but from the Ukrainian side, you know, they understand the Russian objective. It remains that maximalist objective from the beginning, which is to extinguish Ukraine, exterminate Ukraine and Ukrainians. And so the Ukrainians understand that this war is not going to be won by taking X amount of territory or this city or this part of the front line. This war can only end when Russians, Russian soldiers are completely out of Ukrainian territory. And I think there's a psychological element to which is why I believe you know, Ukraine is stepping up the drone attacks against uh, targets inside of Russia, as well as within illegally occupied Crimea, is that you have to also defeat the Russian military, but also defeat the Russian imperial hubris uh, that led to both Putin and the Russian people getting behind Putin, that Ukraine is some of a lesser people, a lesser nation, and that you know Russia has some inherent right to have overlordship over them. But you're now seeing on the front lines, the more Ukraine can do to, you know, if I'm going to say humble or embarrass Russia's perceived military might on the battlefield, but also to, you know, remind the Russian people that they are not quarantined from the consequences of their, their country's aggression. And now we're starting to see that with these, these limited drone strikes on some, uh, you know, Russian in Moscow, as well as Russian airfields within Russia, south of St. Petersburg. Um, so it's, yeah. You know, that psychological element, going back to what you said about these long range strikes, you know, it's, it's both about degrading logistics, but also giving sort of a, a shock, a wake up call to the Russian military and the Russian nation. And I would say probably most importantly to the Russian elite, right? Because I don't think Russian national opinion really has that much of an effect on what Putin does. I think it's the opinion of his elite uh, that, that sustain his grip on power and, um, if if they feel like you know their their country that the, the effects of this war are going to affect their lifestyles, their lives, their security, that could then diminish Putin's Putin's power. And there may be some signs of that. We've seen in the last couple of weeks a huge uptick in the calls for a negotiated settlement, not necessarily by um, Ukraine's closest allies, um, but certainly agents, uh, useful idiots, assets around the world seem to have been pushing very hard for this. Um, to me, there's no such thing as a coincidence. So this this appears as a sort of strategic activation. Um, could this be a sign that, that, that Russia may not want to necessarily end hostilities, but it may want to pause hostilities with a view to rearming and replenishing itself? Yeah, I mean, there's, there's so many things to unpack there, but you know, I think we spoke about this a little bit last time. But I mean, number one, you know, Russia has not expressed any desire to abandon its maximalist objectives in Ukraine, which is to, you know, destroy the Ukrainian government, to kill, capture, overthrow Zelensky, to take Kiev, to divide Ukraine in different pieces, to basically eradicate Ukraine as we know it as a sovereign nation, and to also exterminate Ukrainian nationhood to basically kill as many Ukrainians as it takes to destroy the idea the idea of Ukrainian independence and, and existence as a nation. So that, 
you know, that is Russia's starting position. Like that is what they are trying to achieve on the Ukrainian side. They want to exist, right? Like you can't, like how do you, I mean, when you just on a very basic fundamental level, how do you negotiate with that? Russia doesn't want Ukraine to exist. Ukraine wants to exist. Where's the middle ground in that? Can you do a little genocide? Can you kill a few hundred thousand people? Like what is Ukraine going to trade away? And to think it's not about lines on a map, you know, it's about Ukraine's fundamental right to exist. And this war is not continuing right now because Ukrainians are trying to get back their territory. They're, the war is continuing because Ukraine is not willing to throw up their arms and allow Russia to have a pause, regroup, and make another go at Kyiv, make another go at Kharkiv, make another go at cleaving the country in two, because Russia's goals have not changed. The only way for the war to end is for Russia to abandon its objectives. And so, you know, it, if if you have a very false understanding of what Russia is trying to achieve, then maybe you think, well, why are they just fighting over this 20% of Ukrainian territory? Why doesn't Ukraine just give that away? Well, giving it away won't change anything. Number one, they're going to be condemning all those Ukrainians living in occupied territory to a horrific fate. We're seeing that with mass rape, mass torture, you know, Ukrainian prisoners of war having their, their testicles chopped off, women. And I don't mean to be very crude here, but there's United Nations reports of women having their vaginas sealed shut with a window sealer. I mean, that's the barbarity we're dealing with the Russian side. So if you're a Ukrainian citizen or soldier or politician, are you willing to just condemn, you know, over a million of your fellow citizens to live in that kind of that environment that, or that barbarity? I mean, of course not. And that is the future. You know, what we saw in Bucha and Rapin uh, outside of Izium with the mass graves like that is that is what awaits, the, you know, the rest of the country if, if Ukrainians don't hold back this tide, if they don't maintain the levee, so to speak, over this Russian floodwater. Um, and that is what Ukrainians are fighting for right now. Uh, so, I mean, the notion that this war is about territory and that a territorial exchange will end the war is completely misguided. You're completely right. All Russia wants to do right now, and I agree with you, I think if you see more calls for a truce on humanitarian grounds to stop the fighting or whatever, you know, it's just completely misguided. Um, because, you know, the, the most humanitarian outcome in this war is for Ukrainians to not be exterminated. And the only way to achieve that is for them to achieve a decisive military victory. But the more you hear these, I think Russia is trying to seed this information environment with this, this misguided idea because they need the pause. They need the time to regroup, rearm, reconstitute their forces and to return uh, to their original objective, uh, which is to, like I said, quite a few times, but to destroy Ukraine. And, you know, looping back to where we started, and that was impressions of Ukraine. I mean, as you know, I've traveled around Russia mm -hmm. extensively uh, in the 90s. Um, actually seeing recent videos, I'm not sure a lot of the places outside of the large cities have actually improved since the 90s. I think some of them have actually uh, fallen into more disrepair than they were when i was there um you know i watched a lot of sort of travelogue videos and, and and sort of quite horrified to see the the degeneracy of many of these smaller towns and cities and i don't know whether i was expecting ukraine to be a sort of a a version of what i'd seen in russia Mm -hmm. um, but what I found was 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 absolutely different. I mean, superficially, you'll see in some of the architecture materials and, you know, Lviv doesn't have a metro, but if I did visit Kiev, you'd see superficially some of that sort of, you know, Soviet architecture and so on. But what I actually saw, especially going out into the countryside, is a far more European country than it is resembling what I saw in Russia, uh, especially in the villages where... You walk along these little uh, tracks in the woods or along the sides of roads and you don't find rubbish thrown from car windows. You don't find sort of mess and litter everywhere. Um, people really seem to care for not just their own property, but that which surrounds their property. Um, and it's that sense of sort of taking responsibility that just permeated everything I saw and was impressive. And then the houses themselves. The gardens are well tended. The fruit trees have fruit on them. You know, the fruit isn't nicked. Whereas, <laughs> dare I say it, you know, if you have a, a lovely apple tree or a pear tree, that ain't going to last long in parts of Russia. Um, and that made a big impression on me because what it means is 
individuals not only care for their own possessions, they care what their neighbors think of them as well. That sort of very European sense of not just responsibility, but this sort of um, almost call it judgmental, this sort of social kind of psychological infrastructure that's in place as yeah, well. Yeah, I, I totally agree. I, I think, you know, as as an American, you know, somebody from the United States and you from, from Europe, long history of democracy and the rule of law, you know, it, it was always so striking for me to visit Ukraine and to get this, this education and how the strength of a democracy is not its institutions. In America, we revere the Constitution as this like holy document almost about the that drives away. Um, but it's I truly believe it's the democratic culture which drives the health and the robustness and the enduring the endurance of a democracy. I remember being in Mariupol in 2014, while you could literally hear the sounds of artillery from the advancing Russian forces on the city's outskirts. And there is a, a group called Vimestia, so together in Russian. And they were meeting in a, in a basement in Mariupol. And you had a couple young activists down there leading, you know, these guys are in their 20s and 30s, leading a class teaching older Ukrainians, all gray-haired people who grew up in the, in the Soviet Union, teaching them that they had the right to go to their city council, to go to their mayor and demand that they fix this pothole in the street or to improve the sidewalk or to provide some sort of public service. And you see these older people pushing back, like, I don't want to do that. I don't want to, you know, I don't want to uh, stand out. They, they call it the ostrich mentality, just bury my head in the sand and go along with my life. And these young activists are like, no, you live in a democracy. This is our government and we have every right to demand that our government do what's best for us and to take care of our needs and our basic, you know, our basic rights. And so you see that grassroots birth of democracy in Ukraine. You see people taking agency in their lives. And there's a decentralization measures in Ukraine uh, since 2014, which has uh, done an incredible amount of good to devolve budgetary authority from Kyiv, giving it to local governments. And you see like in my wife's hometown uh, in Southeastern Ukraine, massive improvements in infrastructure and the roads and the sidewalks and playgrounds, and schools, because the local governments have authority to spend their own money. And I, on a side note, I think that that decentralization of fiscal authority played a huge role in Ukraine's ability to resist Russia's invasion because you had local communities who were able to mobilize and affect their own defenses without waiting for government orders. And that allowed this like instantaneous, spontaneous, collective nationwide defense. And you saw that in those first few days at the invasion, you saw checkpoints growing up every few hundred meters. You saw soldiers being armed to defend every little village. And that was because there's been this decentralization, this democratization of decision-making throughout Ukraine that is so important. But when you talk about your impressions about people taking pride in their possessions in their hometowns, I think that is a consequence of the fact that Ukrainians feel more and more like they have agency over their own lives, that their opinions matter, and that in a democracy, everybody has a voice and that they matter. And that they, you know they shouldn't just you know, have that ostrich mentality and hide their heads in the sand and just wait for events to pass them by, like I would argue in Russia. Like you look at Rostov on Don when Prigozhin took over, everybody came out the streets and was like, oh, we support Wagner when he left. We support Putin. They're like they'll just go whichever the way the wind blows. Ukrainians aren't like that, right? They have convictions and they're sticking to it. And you see that most explicitly in the younger generations, the millennials, the generation, you know, the generations thereafter, who are so committed to democracy, so committed to this vision of this idea they want to achieve that they're willing to fight for it. They're willing to fight for it for over a decade, for nearly a decade, excuse me. And I think that that is incredibly uh, impactful and powerful to witness that because then, you know, you, you can't help but return to your own country and almost want to Christ kiss the ground you walk on and say thank god that i inherited this because there is a heavy price uh to achieve freedom and we're seeing ukrainians pay that every day but they're willing to pay it they believe their freedom their survival is worth fighting for and i think you know that's a message that that the whole world needs to hear and another fascinating sense that I got from most Ukrainians. Now, admittedly, most of the people I spoke to are going to be in the sort of more educated classes, you know, literary, political classes, and so on. 
but I, I expect it, it permeates, you know, far more deeply down as well. And that was the sense that power is least, you know, I didn't vote for Zelensky, but he's doing a good job. So I support him. But that is contingent on him doing what I feel is the right thing to do. Not that, you know, you can invert that perhaps um, in the way that Russian leaders are revered in Russia. Um, and there's no sense there that, uh, that, that power is leased. Rather, you, you as a citizen will lease your little corner of society if yeah. you're allowed to. It's a complete inversion uh, of the two societies. Yeah, that, that is a great point to make. And I think that, you know, some of the, like you mentioned the useful idiots in the West, and there are plenty, you know, one of their, their go-to taglines now is Ukraine isn't even a democracy here, blah, blah, blah. Well, <laughs> I would argue that, you know, from what I've been talking about in this podcast, their democratic culture is about as robust as I've ever seen. And it's, they, they believe, they believe in their hearts in democracy. But when you talk about people's attitude toward, toward Zelensky, and you compare that to how Russians treat Putin, they, they worship Putin. Like you look at the, the Russian propaganda, it is like, you know, I don't think Russia is just buying artillery shells from North Korea. I think they're buying propaganda specialists too. You see this ridiculous song and dance stuff. And, you know, it's just, just really sort of grotesque propaganda from the Russian side, but they have this worship of Putin as like a demigod in Russia, as opposed in any descent of Putin is going to land you in prison or worse in Russia or a one-way ticket to the front lines probably. Um, but in Ukraine, you know, people I think would almost universally revere Zelensky for his physical courage. And I haven't met a single soldier yet who wouldn't agree with, with the notion that, you know, Zelensky's heroic decision to stay in Kyiv really was the, the moral impetus that Ukrainians were already willing to fight, but it, allowed, it gave them that, that, that inspiration, like, okay, this is, like, we're all in this together and we're going to win. And like another side note here, like I was just shocked in those first few days. I talked to all my friends in the military I, and I was nervous. I was like, is Kiev going to stand? Is it going to fall? Like what's going on? You know, what, what, do, what's, what's going to happen? You know, we we're all, when your life is on the line, you, you suddenly get quite nervous about the possible outcomes. But I, I was, I was humbled because all my friends in the Ukrainian military, like no, nothing, nothing's wrong. We're going to win this. No doubt. hundred percent takes one year, five years, 10 years. We're going to win. There was no no buckling in there and their sense uh, that they were going to win this war. The only question is and remains, you know, at what cost? But, you know, that admiration for Zelensky does not mean that there is universal, like, you know, just hero worship of Zelensky either. You know, he still has to remain accountable. You see Zelensky now making noble efforts to, to root out corruption in wartime. And that's reflective of the fact the Ukrainian nation demands to see that, right? They're not just going to like let him do whatever he wants and treat him like a czar, like the Russians do Putin. They're going to demand progress from Zelensky. Like we you know they respect him for his courage, but he still has to perform. He hasn't earned the right for all of eternity to just do whatever he wants because he was heroic for one brief period in Kyiv. He remains heroic, but you know he also needs to remain accountable to the Ukrainian nation. And I think that is a great sign of a robust democracy. You look at Churchill, who right lost an election before World War II was over, and so I think you know Zelensky, rightfully so, and he has, as a leader of a democratic country, he knows that he needs to continue to fulfill all of his duties to maintain uh, the popular support for his presidency. And I think that is a great sign, very positive sign of Ukraine's democratic culture, uh, that they are willing to still hold their leaders accountable for all aspects of their of their authority. Uh, even in wartime when the country faces an existential threat. And the last observation, and I think it'll be the last question as well, uh, I'd be interested to hear what you think. I mean, no one goes to war willingly, but no one signs up to war um, to make somebody else rich. So there must be a belief that there'll be a more equitable future, or you're fighting for a society that is already got a certain degree of um uh, you know, distribution of of wealth. And that was one of the observations as well that I made, especially in the Ukrainian countryside. Traveling through the Russian countryside, you will often get, uh, you know, abandoned buildings that are half built or infrastructure that's been fallen into decay. I saw very little of that. You will also get um, 
houses of different scales, you know, from extremely sort of rich, overly ambitious to tiny shacks, abandoned. And they're all kind of higgledy-piggledy kind of mixed up. So this extraordinary gap between wealth and poverty and a lot of very high security fences everywhere. Uh, almost it feels like you've got little mini Kremlins with their fortifications side by side with, with the sort of hovels. So you've got this immediate sense of um, disparity of wealth. Um, also, it does, and this is this is very much a take from Peter Pomerantsev, you get the sense that Russians, when they're building their, their, their country houses, um, whether they feel that money is ill-gotten or not, um, there's this pervading sense that someone else might come along and steal it. So once you've got your hand on a stash, you don't have a sense that you then owe anything to society or you live within some kind of culture. You, you build your little fortress and then you try to protect it from, from theft. Um, I saw none of that in, in, in Ukraine. The houses, you, you get some the little bigger, some the little smaller, some people who clearly have a little bit more money. They might have a boat. They might have a, a van or whatever. Um, but you don't get this sort of extreme disparity. And also you don't seem to get people you know, with grandiose ideas of of building a vast palatial house and then kind of running out of money. Um, what I got the impression of is people that are very mindful of what their neighbours think of them and that showing off in that way would, would, would actually be distasteful. So, again, a very it's, it's quite a subtle thing, but um, I got a very different sense from the Ukrainian countryside than from the Russian, even though some of the details are superficially similar. Yeah, I think, you know, from 2014 onward, Ukrainian society has been rapidly transforming since the pro-democratic revolution in 2014. And then in response to Russia's first invasion, when the volunteer movement in Ukraine really, I think, you know, was the glue that held their country together back in 2014 when Russia first invaded. And Ukraine's military is very, very weak, uh, weakened by corruption. And as the volunteer movement has saved the country since then, Ukraine has been rapidly transforming many of the volunteers who sustained the war effort in the beginning you know once the war settled into that unstable ceasefire after 2015 february 2015 a lot of the volunteers then transitioned to being civil society leaders and so you saw this 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 like sea change in ukraine's democratic culture and i think you know at a, at a slightly slower pace the the institutions so there's definitely a lot of echoes of the 90s in ukraine still you know it's like the some of the judicial system still has problems there's still corruption within business you know there's 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 a lot of ground uh ground to advance within the corruption fight but i mean the the massive difference between i think ukraine and a, and a country like russia it's it really devolves down to the kind of the attitude of the average citizen and in russia it is this law of the jungle, right? You do what you have to do to survive. Morality, ethics really have nothing. It's a gangster state where it's run, it's, you know, it's run by might makes right effectively. And so people aren't willing to stand up for principles or for values. But in Ukraine, you have the young generation who are so courageous and are so committed to what they want to achieve. And what they want to achieve includes a complete social cultural political economic divorce from russia they're committed to that but they have a very clear idea of what they want to achieve much of that idea is driven by their travels to our countries their impressions of our countries through the media through through movies through music through tv shows they know what they want and they have the the compunction they have the belief that their efforts to make change can help their country get there but I would argue that the average young Russian, they're probably, you know, if, if they want to live in a better country, they're more much more likely to just hop on an airplane and try and leave Russia than they are to take to the streets to try and affect political uh, or anti-corruption change within their own country. So there's, you know, Ukraine has institutionally, you know, they, they are still uh, working to sort of eradicate the vestiges of the, the 90s corruption and are making great strides. Uh, but I think that, you know, sort of the, the less quantifiable 
the more qualitative part of this, and I think this is such an important point for people who have spent time in Ukraine to make, is that that democratic culture is so strong, it's so endemic, and it's it's been so embraced by the young people of Ukraine, and even the older people. I mean, I've met so many Ukrainian veterans who served in the Soviet army and Afghanistan war, who now disdain their former comrades who live in Russia from the Soviet army. They hate Russia. They think Russia symbolizes every sort of atavistic <laughs> impulse uh, of post-Soviet, uh, you know, their post-Soviet era. And they want to, like I said, have a complete divorce from Russia. So you have this very widespread attitude and, and sense within Ukraine about, you know, everybody has a as agency, everybody has a duty to do what they can to help win the war. And then I think that, you know, once you've mobilized an entire nation to to sacrifice, to serve, to win the war, whether you're an 80-year-old woman sewing ghillie suits for snipers or you're a 21-year-old soldier leading a charge in the counteroffensive, everybody is doing what they can to help win this war. And that attitude is not going to switch off like a light switch when the war ends, right? People still are going to have this sense of duty, of common sacrifice, common purpose, and that is going to, you know, in my very optimistic uh, estimation, I think that's going to supercharge Ukraine's transformation to a much more, uh, you know, positive future, positive democratic future. You know, what we have to worry about, though, and this is why I believe so wholeheartedly in arming Ukraine as robustly and quickly as possible, is that the longer this war goes on, there is a psychological toll that you start to erode the hope and the dreams of these people because they've endured so much hardship and suffering in their lives. And you don't want them to be so broken down and to endure so much tragedy that they lose the energy to push their country over that last that last hump when the war is over. So for the sake of, I think, Ukraine's bright future, let's arm them to the teeth. Let's let them win this thing as quickly as possible. It'll end up sparing so many lives the quicker they can win this war. And let them move on and enjoy the dream, the future that they have so clearly uh, fought to achieve and what they deserve. That's a very powerful place to end. Uh, and I think almost everyone watching this channel will wholeheartedly uh, agree with uh, with what you've said. Nolan, thank you so much for spending so much time and uh, helping to unpack uh, Ukraine's divorce from Russia. Russian nepotism, corruption, and uh, toxic influence. Um, and we really hope it succeeds, and we hope that your work has uh, an impact as well. Um, and I strongly encourage people to follow and uh, read your articles to understand what's going on better. Well, thank you. I appreciate you having me on, and kudos to you and your great work as well. Always happy to contribute.